Okay, we are in 1 Samuel. And where we left off last week, we had discussed Hannah's inability to bear children and how her rival, the, the other wife of Elkanah, uh, Penina, would, would, uh, would provoke her, especially during the seasons of the year that they would go up to worship. So let's pick it up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she was continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought that she was drunk. Alright, so, so we talked about in, in verse 8 last week, how Elkanah really tried to comfort her, really tried to reach out to her, but it was insufficient. Uh, but he was doing the best as he could could as a husband, and he really encouraged her to eat, because it says that she wouldn't eat because her heart was so distressed at this provoking, year after year not having a child. And we know that the reason Elkanah had this, this other wife is because that he had to do this to, in order to have children. So, in verse 9, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. So Hannah did finally take her husband's advice and did have something to eat. Then it says, Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Okay, so we know from what was written in the law of Moses that they had built a tabernacle and the ark of God was in the tabernacle, which was a tent. It was a movable unit and it would travel with the children of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. Once they came into the land, that tent was set up in Shiloh. And never was there a directive that we know of that is recorded that it was to be taken out of that tent until the building of the official temple by Solomon. David had wanted to do it, but it was eventually Solomon that was was allowed to do it because David was a man of blood. He had shed too much blood in his life. But David had accumulated everything needed for the building of the temple. So in spite of there being a directive, a specific directive to convert the tent into a more firm structure, we see that Eli was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So some structure had been built, probably not extremely elaborate, but some structure now, because now there's a doorpost. It's not just a tent. So tents wear out after hundreds of years. So they had built some structure. We don't know anything about it. But we know some structure had been built, even though there wasn't any specific directive. 
But just because there wasn't a specific directive doesn't mean that there wasn't an opportunity to build a firmer structure. Maybe the tent was starting to leak after a few hundred years, which tents can certainly do. So they built some firmer structure. You know, God gives guidelines in His Word to us. And then He allows us as His children to fill in pieces as long as they're not against His will. I'll give you another example. There is nothing prescribed in the Scriptures to have synagogues. Never, never, never was it told to Israel to have synagogues. So they were to have the temple of the Lord. But what they did is in other localities, they would build up synagogues. Sometimes they would meet in homes. Sometimes they were set aside structures. But Jesus himself used synagogues. He preached in synagogues. He would go into these structures and minister. So even though synagogues were not defined of the Lord for them to build, people felt that, hey, you know, this can help our gathering. And they built synagogues in different locales. Now, that didn't substitute for the temple that was in Jerusalem. Still, people had to go up several times a year. Men had to go up several times a year to worship in Jerusalem, particularly one time a year. And we see Paul also trying very hard, even after the, the birth and 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 death and resurrection of Jesus, trying to get back to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. But still they built. And, you you know, sometimes there's a misconception in the way God speaks. Sometimes there's a thought that if God is really speaking to us, He would direct everything in our lives. Every little thing He will direct if we could really hear God. And that's not true. He does not normally speak like that. On occasion, He does. Jesus told them, go, and you will see a donkey tied there, and it's colt, untie it. And if the owner says, what are you doing? Say, the master has need of it, and bring it to me. And then go, and you'll see some people walking with pots on their heads. Follow them, and they will lead you to an upper room, and there you shall have the Passover feast. And if there's any questions, just say the Master has need of it. So sometimes God directs very, very specifically to His disciples. Sometimes, but not generally. Jesus spoke on occasion, very specifically to His disciples as to what would happen. Later on in this, in this book of 1 Samuel, through 1 Samuel, through, uh, um, there is instruction to, to Saul to go and to uh, follow in a certain way. Very specific instruction, but not generally. And sometimes you will see believers, and believe me, if you haven't seen this, you will. If you spend a lot of time in the church, around people, you will meet people like this, that, that feel that they have every word from the Lord mapped out for every situation. And that's very unusual that the Lord speaks like that. He gives us his general direction. I'll give you another example that, that really brings it home. Just walking up to class today, I saw Mr. Chrisman, this is Barbara Chrisman's husband, sitting in the class with a bunch of five-year-olds and they were co- coloring on some paper in the children's ministry class. There is nothing in the Bible that says that churches should have children's ministries. Nothing. Sure, Jesus blessed the little children, but nothing formal of, of a ministry to little kids. But it is a good thing so that the kids can be in classes and learn about God as they color. 
This is what you do with a five-year-old. This is where they are. This was never prescribed in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament, but we do it. It is a good thing. God never said, thou shalt have children ministries. No, people in their creativity came up with this idea. And it is a blessing. It is a good thing. Because we know that God doesn't give all this directive in everything. So, for example, why do you, why do you go to college and get a Ph.D.? If God speaks everything, He can just speak to you what you need. You can go out and be a practicing chemist without a Ph.D. Because God would say, in that bottle is, is, is a chemical. I want you to add chemical A to chemical B and to chemical C. This is a good way for people to die. Natural selection takes over. God doesn't direct like this. If He did, then you don't need to even go to school because God would give you everything you need to write the programs you need. But we know God doesn't do that. So prayer, prayer in and of itself, is not a substitute for study. It is not a substitute for creativity. And think about it from God's perspective. God could certainly create little robots that He would program to do every little thing. But there's no love there. I, as a father, enjoy seeing my daughter in her line of work writing and reading what she's written. She's a fantastic writer. How much did I teach her how to write? I mean, maybe I taught her ABC. That's it. But she learned this through years of study, and now she's creative on her own. And as a father, I like to see her expression of creativity. I don't want to see her just saying, Dad, what should I write today? I will, I will, uh, I will just dictate to me and I will write. I don't want to see that. I want to see her expression of creativity. God allows people in the body of Christ to be creative. And if you ever think, oh, if God would speak really clearly to me, He'd tell me this, 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 this. He doesn't normally do that. He leads us in general ways. He leads us through counsel. You share with somebody, you know, your thoughts of what you're going to try in the next business. And, you know, this, who do you ask? Well, ask great businessmen what they think of this new business you want to start. If they say, that's a bad idea, that's a good way to go broke, well, then you may want to think about that a second time. You see what I mean? There was a doorpost here. He was sitting at the doorpost. They had built some structure. And God was using that particular structure. Because after a while, things wear out. You've got to put in sprinkler systems and all these other things that are convenient. You, you, put, you put the children and the old people on the first floor. You put the college students and, and, and the middle-aged people on the second floor. Why? Because they can walk the steps easier. Never was it prescribed in God's Word to do that. But it makes sense to do that. There's creativity and expression in God. Because God loves us. He wants to to give us just a framework and then allow us to express our creativity and our gifts in that. He gives us gifts to be utilized, not to be directed in every detail. And you will meet Christians that say, God told me do this, God told me do that, God told me do this, God told me do that. Have you ever met a Christian like that? I'm like, man, God speaks to you so clearly on everything. And usually, usually these folks We'll be going, you know, today they're going this direction, and the next day you're going, well, didn't you tell me that God told you to go this way? And now you're going this way. Has God now changed His mind? No, they're not hearing a thing. 
It's all up here in their own mind that they're hearing this. Not always. But if people are always, God told me this, God told me that, God told me this, God told me that, there's no example of that in the Scriptures. You don't see that pattern in the Scriptures. God directs. He gives general direction. But He doesn't give every little detail on a regular basis. Sometimes He does, but not generally. Okay, let's look on at, at, at the next verse. Well, let me just consider one other thing here. So it says that, that in verse 10, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Okay, so there's this praying to the Lord and weeping. Praying to the Lord, mixing with weeping, is a fine thing to do. So you get so intent in your prayer, you cry before the Lord. Or you get joyous before the Lord. Or you sing before the Lord. If you have no time with the Lord, where you spend time in prayer, where it really pulls something on yourself, you're probably not spending enough time. And look at what she's doing. She is being so provoked by Penina, this, this other wife of Alcana. It calls, the Bible refers to it as her rival. That's what the Bible refers to it as in verse 6. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly. So look at Hannah's response to the provoking from a rival. She wasn't scheming on how she could kill this woman. She wasn't scheming on how she could poison this woman. She wasn't, you know, telling her husband, get rid of that other wife, she's driving me crazy. The woman was weeping in prayer before God. Look at how she handled her problems. She took them before God and she began to pray about these situations. Turn over to Luke chapter 6. This is the classic portion which you should be familiar with. That tells us to pray. That tells us to pray when situations get really rough to begin to pray about this thing. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours. Do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. 
So in verse 27 it says, But I say to you who hear. In other words, my instruction is to those of you who love me. God is not instructing the world, nor is He instructing politicians what they're supposed to do. He's instructing His disciples. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. You know, one young lady, she was telling me how her boss just really hated her. Her boss was just always getting on her case. And, and uh, you know, I wondered about that because this, this young girl has so much life, so much excitement, and I know her to be a hard worker. And, and I said, all right, I want you to start to do good to your boss. Do good things for her. I said, what is she like? I said, I don't know. I said, well, what does she like? She, you know, she comes in with a Starbucks coffee every day. She loves her Starbucks coffee. I said, good. I want you to go and bring her Starbucks. So that at your lunch break, you go out to Starbucks, you find out what she likes, you buy one for her and bring it and give it to her. And so she did that. And then I said, now I want you to go and buy her a Starbucks card. And just give it to her a gift card. Just as a present. And she did that. She said that her boss was so touched by this that her whole attitude has begun to change and even invited her out to lunch. Her boss invited her out to lunch with some of the other ladies in the office. It says you are to do good to those who hate you. You do good. The Bible says you overcome evil with good. You do good acts. We're to love them, we're to do good to them. In verse 28, bless those who curse you. So in other words, if people are coming against us, Jesus calls us to something different. If they curse us, Jesus says, bless them. That is a commandment. You cursed me, I am commanded to bless you. That's what the Bible says. We are commanded, the instruction of Jesus is not to the one cursing. Not to the one who doesn't know God. His instruction is to His disciples. His disciples, He says, you are to bless. He doesn't say, bless if you feel like it. He says, this is a commandment. You can obey or disobey like you obey or disobey any commandment. If you obey, you are blessed. If you disobey, you are not. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We are to offer up prayers specifically for those who mistreat us. If somebody mistreats us, we are commanded to pray for them. And not to pray for their death, not to pray for you know, them to get in a car accident, but to pray for their good. We are commanded to pray for their good. To pray for those who mistreat us. This is a commandment. <clears throat> Jesus calls us to something different. We see this type of attitude in Hannah to some respect. We don't know exactly, you know, if she was praying for Penina, but we never see her lashing out back, and she herself was pouring out her heart in prayer. The New Testament calls us as believers to something higher than it called the people in the Old Testament. And what it calls us to is to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us, and to specifically target for good those who do us wrong. It says, your enemies, you're to do them good. Do good to those who hate you. 
That's what it tells us to do. Do good to those who hate us. So he who it is or she who it is who hates you, you are specifically called to an act of good. And if you don't know what to do for them, you can't figure it out, you don't know what they like, I'll give you a suggestion. Do this. Buy them a Starbucks card. Even if you may not know if they don't like coffee, that's fine. They'll give it to somebody else. But bless them with that. Just give it to them and just say, here's a, here's a Christmas present for you. That, this is what we are commanded to do. This is a commandment. Will you follow it? If you do, you will be blessed. Okay, turn back to to First uh, Samuel. In verse, in verse 11, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give... The, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So what she was proclaiming was a Nazarite vow. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, it explains the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a vow that it says in, in Numbers chapter one, Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, a man or a woman could take. It was to be a time set aside. If we turn to Numbers chapter 6, we can see that what a Nazarite vow was. And it was a time set apart to pray and to spend some dedicated time with the Lord. And there were certain restrictions that one put upon him or her own self. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying in in Numbers chapter 6 verse 1, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, shall not drink vinegar, whether made from the wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall pass over his head, He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair grow. And then he gives some other commandments during the time of separation. So there are times when God calls us to pray. You may take upon yourself a season of fasting. You may do this. But this is something a man or a woman can take upon themselves. In the scriptures, God put this sometimes on people. There was a Nazarite vow that was given that God said should be upon Samson. He spoke this to Samson's mother and father in in Judges chapter 13, verse 5. That Samson was to be a Nazarite from his birth for his entire life, never to cut his hair. He disobeyed his vow. It caused a great failure in his life. There was not another Nazarite that that had happened from birth other than Samuel until John the Baptist. Now, we know that Paul probably took a Nazarite vow because it specifically says that he, he went from quench and he had his hair cut, noting specifically that he, he had, had probably taken some vow and he had given up some offering shortly following that in Jerusalem. He was giving up the offering following a Nazarite vow, which was something that was also supposed to be done. But he put it upon himself. He never commanded us to do that. There are things that you can put upon yourself, but if you put it upon others, it is legalism. 
There are things that we can put upon our own children when they are young that we can say, you will go to church because we go to church as a family. When a child grows older, that decision is theirs. Hopefully there's been enough set into their lives instilled within them that they would make the wise choice. This woman, Hannah, is saying, I will dedicate my son to you from birth. God never put this. This was something that she was dedicating this son, that he would be a Nazarite for his entire life, dedicated to the Lord. Again, after that, after some time, it was up to Samuel whether he was going to walk in that. But he fulfilled that. He was faithful to it. Samson was not faithful. Samuel was. Samson and Samuel were contemporaries, by the way. And it was during the time period that Samson kept the Philistines at bay that Samuel was, was free to have his little, little uh, prophet school. Probably when Samson had died is when the Philistines really began to take over and that's when they, they conquered and, and got the ark, which we'll read about. But they were contemporaries. But this woman is making a commitment on behalf of her son. <clears throat> Verse 12. Now it came about when she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered her and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So, as she's praying, her lips are moving, but no words are coming out. Perfectly acceptable way to pray. Eli sees this as he's sitting by the doorpost of this temple. He sees this woman. So, women couldn't just go walking into the temple. So, he prayed near a close spot to it, in this tabernacle. And she's praying to the Lord, and Eli sees this, and he assumes that she's drunk. Now, why would, she, why would he make that assumption? He would not make that assumption if no one had ever been drunk near the temple before. What we know and what we're going to read about later on in this chapter is that there was such decadence in that time period, such decadence, and that decadence had even hit the priesthood, even Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's own sons, that there was prostitution going on around this, this little tabernacle, this little temple structure. There was drunkenness. And we see throughout the scriptures that very often God had to reprove people for drunkenness and for prostitution around the temple. You say, well, wow, that's weird. Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches and even in this city where there's a whole lot of immorality that goes on. A whole lot of immorality. It is not uncommon. It is certainly known that, that preachers have gotten up and preached in the pulpit drunk had alcohol problems. It is certainly known that leaders in churches have had immoral relationships with members of the congregation, the deacons and elders. This same sort of thing was happening. So it was so common in that day when he saw a woman pouring out her heart to God, there was probably such emotion in her. You know, it wasn't a 
you know, some quiet little thing and walking away. There was, you know, she was really pouring out her heart. He assumed that she was drunk. So he comes at her and he says, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Can you imagine the high priest reproving? Imagine the pastor of the church walking up to you and you're sincerely doing something. And the pastor walks up and says, put away your wine from you. Why are you so drunk? What are you, you were out drinking last night, weren't you? I mean, you'd take offense at this, wouldn't you? I'm not coming back here to this church. That thinks I'm drunk. How dare he speak to me like this? This is what happened to this woman. But instead of her saying, this was so mean, so cruel of you, I've lost my faith because of you. Because of you, I'm not going to seek God anymore. Because I got offended by a person. You know, people make this excuse all the time. The pastor offended me so, that's why I don't go to church anymore. Well, that's a lame excuse. Pastors are going to offend you just like other people offend you, just like you offend other people sometimes. And to not seek Jesus because you've been offended by a man or by a woman in church is a lame excuse. I mean, here was the high priest. This woman is pouring out her heart to God. And the high priest accuses her of being drunk. Tells her, put away her wine. And Hannah replies, no, my Lord, I am an oppressed, I am oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. And I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman. So the way he spoke to her was as if she had been a worthless woman. Like one of the temple prostitutes, as the scriptures speak about. That's the way he spoke to her. But she didn't take that offense and use it as an excuse to not seek God. You will one day be offended by someone in the church. Maybe by me. Maybe you've already been offended by me, but you're back. But one day you're going to be offended. Don't use it as an excuse to stop coming. Don't use it as an excuse to stop seeking Jesus. This will happen just as one day you will offend somebody in the church. And they shouldn't use that as an excuse to say, Oh, people were mean to me in church, therefore I'm not coming back. No. The relationship with God transcends this. There may have been an offense. You get past it. We are to forgive. Even before the person asks forgiveness, we are to forgive. So she appeals to Eli to say, Hey, I'm not drunk. Look at me. I mean, this happened on the day of Pentecost. Remember on the day of Pentecost that the apostles were speaking and, and, and praying in other tongues to God and people accused them of being drunk. Imagine if Peter said, well, you accuse us of, of, of being drunk, we're offended. Therefore, the rest of you can go to hell. We will just go and enjoy Jesus ourselves. No, he says, it's, it's, tonight, you know, it's this morning. We're not drunk. You know, he didn't take this thing up as an offense. You can have two people stand here. One person says to these two people exactly the same thing. One of the two people says, oh, no, you have it all wrong. It's not really like that. And they get on with their life. And the other person is like, I'm hurt. Forever I'll be hurt. Forever I'll remember this. And go away and have a pity party. We have to get past these things. And so she appeals to him and says, you know, I'm just pouring out my heart to God. And when Eli hears this, you know, it's interesting. I mean, this was a different generation. Eli didn't say, I'm so sorry for offending you. That was wrong of me. 
Eli says, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. That's it. No apology. Just go in peace. Be warm, be filled. May your prayer be answered. You know, I would have expected a little bit more. It's a different generation, different people. And you've got to understand also generations. I mean, you can't expect from old men what you expect from one of your contemporaries. I mean, they're of a different generation. Maybe Eli meant it as just, you know, some general blessing. But Hannah took this reply from Eli to mean something so deep to her. Hannah said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. To her, this was assurance. She poured out her heart to God. Whether it was the pouring out of heart, her heart to God, or whether it was the speaking of the word that she heard from Eli the high priest, or a combination of the two, I don't know. But there was an assurance which she held on to. The matter was done in her mind, in her heart, so that now she could eat without any problem, and her face was now happy. If you learn to pray, if I learn to pray, we go before God, you can bring all these problems that, that just fluster us. You know, I can get so worked up. Really, I have this ability. Jim Tour has this ability to get so worked up about nothing. In other words, I can be sitting there. Nothing has changed in my life. And then I start thinking about a, a situation. And it goes, this thing starts going in this, in this, uh, this do loop. I don't know if you... It's in, in Fortran 4, which is what I learned to program in. You can get caught in one of these things. I don't know what's Fortran up to now. I have no idea. Nine? Well, Fortran 95. Oh, okay. No, it's a it's a big number. But I use Fortran 4, but that wasn't in 1904. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, you get caught in this thing, and in my mind, I'm just going around and around. All of a sudden. I'm angry, I'm flustered, and I'm scared. It was totally fine. To just things going on in my mind, I'm flustered and scared and angry. If I would learn to get this before the Lord and spend time before God, God would settle it to the point where I can just leave that with God. All of that's just, Lord, I lay this at your feet. Please take care of this. She came out of there with assurance. Nothing in her life had changed. She still wasn't pregnant. She didn't have this son. But there was an assurance that came through the act of prayer. This is what God does. He can work in our hearts an assurance through the act of prayer. Maybe a word spoken by somebody brings further assurance in in the case of Eli. But it's learning how to come before the Lord and get an assurance from Him, through an act of prayer. This is something that we need to learn to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that we can learn and grow through the truth of Your Word. Father, thank You for Your mercies. You are so good. Father, I pray for these young people that You would teach them to pray, that they wouldn't get so worked up and flustered, but that they would learn to pray. 
and set their hearts so that they could get an assurance of You from Your Word. Father, I pray that they would not be quick to pick up an offense and so destroy their lives over some little offense. And Lord, I pray that You would you would so take these young people and cause them to do according to Your Word, to bless those who curse them, to do good to those who hate them. Father, let them walk in this and so have good and blessed lives. Father, I commit this to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.